You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And just as a warning, these films might be in theaters now, or they may be from 10, 20, 30 years ago. But regardless, there's a strong possibility that I will be revealing spoilers. I might give away the plot or the ending in this review, so just be warned. The Untouchables, which came out in 1987 and was directed by Brian De Palma. Paramount Pictures announces an extraordinary entertainment experience. The Untouchables. Kevin Costner is Elliot Ness. Robert De Niro is Al Capone. Sean Connery is Jimmy Malone. A story of good and evil, honor and betrayal, corruption and courage. The Untouchables, directed by Brian De Palma, rated R. Opens Wednesday, June 3rd at a theater near you. It stars Kevin Costner, Sean Connery, Robert De Niro, Andy Garcia, Charles Martin Smith, Billy Drago, Richard Bradford, and Patricia Clarkson. The genre would be gangster action thriller. I probably watch this at least once a year. It's just one of the great Chicago movies. Brian De Palma just directs the shit out of this thing. So many unique shots and angles from overhead, along with his trademark split diopter shot, which is used to dramatic effect in at least one high-stakes moment early on, between Connery's Malone and Costner's Ness. Yeah, you know the one, the blood oath scene in the church, which features key dialogue that has been repeated for decades. If you open the ball on these people, Mr. Ness, you must be prepared to go all the way, because they won't give up the fight until one of you is dead. I want to get Capone. I don't know how to get him. Want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. And that's how you get Capone. Everyone involved is painting with the broadest brush possible to craft the ultimate Prohibition-era crime drama. Everything just looks lushly ramped up. It almost feels like a hyper-realistic comic book at times. From the way cinematographer Stephen Burham classically frames Windy City landmarks like the Board of Trade, which fittingly would also be used two decades later in The Dark Knight, to gorgeous period costumes designed by the legendary Giorgio Armani. This is not remotely close to the real stories of Elliot Ness, nor the actual heroic individuals who eventually took down Al Capone. They're not even trying here. But why report the facts when the legend makes for a much more entertaining movie? That task falls heavily upon master playwright screenwriter David Mamet, the guy who was Tarantino before Tarantino. And he delivers with an endless stream of quotable, crackling dialogue, plus an absurdly streamlined narrative compared to actual events. And I do mean streamlined. There's almost zero fat here. The story just moves with such perfect forward momentum. Rewatching it most recently, I was sort of astounded at how many iconic moments just come at you in succession at certain points of the movie. You have the blood oath in the church. Boom. Then recruiting George Stone. Awesome intro to a young Andy Garcia, by the way. Bam. Where are you from, Stone? From the south side. Stone. George Stone. What's your name? What's your real name? That is my real name. Nah. What was it before you changed it? Giuseppe Petri. Jeez, I knew it. That's all you need. One thief and whop on the team. What's that you say? I said that you're a lying member of a no-good race. It's much better than you, you stinking Irish pig. 
Oh, I like him. Yeah, I like him too. You just joined the Treasury Department, son. Yeah, okay. Then their first alcohol raid, Kapow. And then De Niro's iconic bat scene at the mob roundtable, Splat. Sunny day, stands are full of fans. What does he have to say? I'm going out there for myself. <laughs> but I get nowhere unless the team wins. Team. Jesus Christ. Literally split. All within 15 minutes of runtime and with each moment given time to breathe, no less. Lord help our educational system if every other major historical event in the history of this country had such an entertaining and concise cinematic cliff notes like this one. Of course, that leaves the cast, which is close to perfect, with Connery, smoldering young Andy Garcia, and Billy Drago stealing most of the scenes that they're in. Unfortunately, leaving Costner possibly as the weakest link since he has the most thankless role. He still looks great as Elliot Ness, which certainly helps. He holds his own during the action sequences, but wow, there are some domestic scenes with his wife, which are just a rough watch. But we'll get to her a bit later. Back to Costner. I'm always torn as to whether the issue is his over-earnest performance or what's on the page. It's really hard to say because he serves Connery very well in their scenes together. I mean, maybe it's just hard for any actor to sell cheesy lines like these. Never stop. Never stop fighting till the fight is done. What do you say? What do you say? I said never stop fighting till the fight is done. What? You heard me, Capone. It's over. Now, granted, his whiny Southern California delivery of that very line It's not helping matters, but his character is clearly serving a purpose here as the stiff, uptight Boy Scout in contrast with all the morally compromised folks surrounding him. And it serves that purpose as we get further into the darker second half of this movie. And trust me, it does get dark. Which is not to say it's bad, but De Palma and Mehmet clearly want to remind us that this is not some rousing, feel-good Western as it might have seemed early on. Nope, we see two characters that we have grown to love get brutally murdered in the second half of this movie. And as entertaining as De Niro is with his periodic asides as Capone, it's Billy Drago's nitty who becomes this film's most effective boogeyman. Drago is unmistakably menacing with his raspy delivery, his perpetual scowl, and of course that unmistakable white suit. Now he isn't given many lines, but he sells every one of them. I said, nice house. You live there? (laughs) Little girl's having a birthday, huh? Yes. Nice to have a family. Yes, it is. Man should take care. See that nothing happens to Drago is just unforgettable, likely portraying one of the more underrated villains of the 80s. But of course, Nitty works so well, partially thanks to his counterweight in this story. And that would be Malone, played by Sir Sean, who just kills it in the performance that would earn him his only Oscar. Probably my earliest Oscar memory was actually watching this with my mother live. Sean Connery winning that Oscar. It was a big deal in our Bond-loving household. And he, by all means, deserved it, too. And never more so than for a scene that seriously messed me up as a young kid watching this for the first time on video. Now, spoiler alert, 
spoiler alert again for a 35-year-old movie, mind you, Malone's death is not only brutal, but operatic, and pun intended as it's initially cross-cut with Capone watching Pagliacci, as we just feel every last desperate gasp of breath from Connery, covered with blood no less, after Costner and Garcia find him on the floor, with a strong assist from the swelling sax and violins of Morricone's score no less. The bookkeeper? The bookkeeper? What? The bookkeeper, he's on this train? He's on this train? What are you prepared to do? Stay. 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 Oh, no. Now, yes, it's a showy death scene, but that doesn't make it any less effective. I was just floored watching this as a preteen. I remember being so surprised and taken aback that an actor who I knew was James Bond was suddenly being gunned down brutally on screen. I think I even got annoyed at my parents at the time. You know, I probably ran to them and said, why did you say this was a good movie? I was so upset. And yeah, I feel you no time to die detractors. I really do. Watching James Bond die on screen, even though it's not really James Bond. But it's just a visceral moment, and decades later, it still holds up as one of the best death scenes. And it, of course, sets the tone and higher stakes for what is likely this film's most iconic sequence, that train station shootout on the stairs in Union Station. Yes, it's a glorious sequence, which is 100% pure De Palma unleashed, even though it's technically ripping off Eisenstein. And while I don't doubt that he fudges the physics just a bit, thanks to the canny use of slow-mo, it still remains among the elite action sequences, which I can just watch again and again and again. And believe it or not, that's not even my favorite scene in the movie. We'll get to that a bit later. Overall, I would not refer to The Untouchables as De Palma's best movie, but it might just be his most purely entertaining. And that brings us to the categories. The first category would be Best Needle Drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. Let's not forget that tense, melancholy score from the late, great Ennio Morricone, starting off with a striking mix of percussion and piano keys pounding through those now iconic opening credits, as we hear a building theme coming from a harmonica, of all things. It sets a sinister tone for what follows, and this was also the sort of propulsive action theme music that Hans Zimmer, among my favorites, would pound us into submission with decades later. However, listening to it here... Morricone just did it before it became cool. The next category would be Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. 
Now, regarding those scenes with Elliot Ness and his wife, she is played by the Oscar-nominated and multiple Emmy-nominated actress Patricia Clarkson in her on-screen debut. Not only are these scenes just awkward, but to add insult to injury, Clarkson is simply listed in the credits as Ness's wife. She is not even given a name. Everything is just played so earnestly. And Morricone's score is not helping either in these scenes, even laying it on a bit thick. I'm honestly not sure what Clarkson is even doing in this movie, as her character just seems here mainly to just smile and tell her husband just how proud she is of him in each of her scenes. Now granted, this was early in her career, but it's still a waste of someone who would eventually become one of our most versatile actresses. Now it's time to go to work. Make a good first impression. And now I'm actually going to combine the final two categories. And that would include the trailer moment, the scene or moment that best describes this movie, and the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Like I said, this is a film loaded with iconic moments. And for me, the most iconic one occurs roughly halfway through as we watch one of our protagonists commit an absurdly violent act that you could likely only get away with in a De Palma or Verhoeven movie, if I'm being fair. We just had a pretty rousing shootout on a Canadian bridge between some of Capone's bootlegging goons and our eponymous untouchables, and they're now back at a cabin questioning a higher-up Capone accountant who has a logbook listing key payments from the big guy, which could possibly incriminate him. So now we have Malone and Ness trying to question him at this cabin. He's sitting in a chair, they're both standing in front of him, and he's just not biting. So Connery's Malone takes it upon himself to step right outside on the porch of this cabin, where he sees this dead goon just lying there. He was just shot by Ness. And he picks up this corpse and starts to threaten him. <laughs> Only the bookkeeper, who can see through the window to the back, doesn't know that this goon is already dead. Malone then holds a gun to the corpse's mouth and threatens to blow his brains out if he doesn't talk, which of course he clearly can't. <laughs> As Connery holds up this corpse with a gun to his mouth, just outside, we watch everyone else just standing in stoned silence as he gives the corpse a count to three. And as the bookkeeper looks on in horror, one, two, three, bam! And guess who starts talking? I'm fucking with you, Mr. Hardcase. We have to have that information one way or another. Not that way. You're going to talk, huh? Eh? Out. I'm going to be begging to talk, but somebody's going to talk. Hey, come on, you. On your feet. I need you to help me to translate this book, huh? And I'm not going to ask you a second time. I'm going to count to three. Well, what's the matter? Can't you talk with a gun in your mouth? One. It's a brutal scene which Connery just plays perfectly. Just another example of classic myth-making, both in front of and behind the camera. 
And speaking of myth-making, De Niro is given his share of broad, memorable flourishes as Capone. Costner certainly looks the part of the all-American, uncorruptible hero as Ness. But at the end of the day, it is Connery's Malone who carries this movie. The Untouchables is a story about the legends driving our ongoing perception of some real-life events. And no performance in this movie bridges that gap better than Connery. Yes, as Malone is a larger-than-life character. How else could he be delivering speeches like his iconic one about the Chicago way? Folks in real-life situations rarely talk like that, nor are ever that good at expressing a point of view so succinctly. It's movie dialogue, plain and simple. But not only does Connery's Scottish brogue and regal mannerisms help you buy it, his character embodies it. All the way through those wrenching last words of dialogue that we hear him say late in the movie during his death scene. His Malone is bombastic, but he's also vulnerable, and he's even too impetuous at times. Even through less stylish costuming, which was apparently was Connery's idea, he also just seems more like a lived-in person than anyone else on screen. While I can't quite be sure that I would consider this Connery's best performance overall, it's more than understandable that this is the one he won his Oscar for. Over the past 60-plus years, he has become one of our most celebrated movie stars with a larger-than-life persona and an unmistakable voice. And seriously, nobody else in Scotland sounds like him, but who cares? For not being the hero that this movie deserves, but the hero that it most certainly needs, Sean Connery is the MVP. Are you okay, pal? Had a rough day on the job. Uh, are you going home now? I was about to. Well then, you just fulfilled the first rule of law enforcement. Make sure when your shift is over, you go home alive. Here endeth the lesson. My rating for The Untouchables would be four and a half stars out of five. And on a personal note, there are a few folks I have known who are more enduring fans of Sir Sean than my mother, Beth Gershon. I saw many a Connery opus in theaters with her from his last Bond movie to Red October to The Rock. Her birthday happens to fall the day after this episode is being released online. So as a shout out to my personal favorite Connery fan, happy birthday, mom. And if you're looking to watch The Untouchables, it's available to rent or buy on all streaming platforms. And that ends another Chicago review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.